0: Hi, hello, bonjour, namaste. This is Out of the Clouds, a podcast at the crossroads between business and mindfulness. And I'm your host, Anne Muletala. Today, I have the pleasure to introduce you to a wonderful novelist called April Davila. April, who is a fourth generation Californian, you'll hear in the interview, she's quite passionate about her state of origin is not only a writer but she also graduated from the same meditation and mindfulness teacher training as I did and we met over we met over zoom we met over zoom during our weekend closing retreat at the end of january i looked her up on linkedin and i read a couple of her blog posts and found that she was exploring how mindfulness and meditation was supporting her in her work as a writer as a novelist so I got in touch I thought wonderful someone who's got a craft and a foot in mindfulness how perfect for the podcast I so enjoyed my conversation with April she's incredibly relatable very funny and I hope that you will enjoy our explorations around writing the craft of how meditation can support artistic endeavours and um, lots of other fun things. Anyways, I am thrilled to be bringing you this beautiful interview with April Davila. Enjoy. April, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to Out of the Clouds. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So I would love to first maybe ask you, where am I finding you today?
1: I am in a suburb of Los Angeles. We're just north of LA and west of Pasadena. It's called La Cañada. Actually quite lovely. We're very happy here.
0: Yeah, I like to ask my guests to sort of tell us a story freely to introduce themselves, if that's okay.
1: Yes, of course. Where to start? I live in Southern California, but I'm a Northern California girl at heart. And I know... Many of your listeners are not necessarily in the States. So the difference between Northern California and Southern California is actually pretty dramatic. They should be separate States. So I grew up in Northern California. My mom was a painter. My dad was a helicopter pilot. So I had a kind of unusual parenting I have one sibling, a younger sister. And I mean, I lived in one house my whole life. I thought of it always as a pretty uneventful childhood. And then when I decided to go to college, I came down here to Southern California. I went to Scripps College and actually studied science. I was a biology major, minored in marine ecology, which I loved. I mean, I still love science. I'm a big fan of science. I read about it. I love talking about it, but I just wasn't great at it. I'm not super great with details. And it turns out if you want to be a scientist, you actually have to really be good with the details. So I did give it a shot. I worked as a research scientist out of undergrad. And then after doing a couple of jobs, realized that if I was gonna actually make a living at this and and be a scientist, I would have to go back to school and get a PhD, at least a master's, if not a PhD. And being in the lab and doing that part of the work was not what I loved about it. I loved being out in the field. And so I kind of floundered then. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And that was right around the time I met my husband. I was back up in Northern California at that point. He's a filmmaker. he was working on some film projects. So he kind of roped me in just this exciting, creative work he was doing. And I ended up working with him for a little bit before we were married. And then a little bit after I produced his first movie up in San Francisco. But then after our daughter was born, we just realized that if he was going to seriously be in the film business, you kind of have to be in Los Angeles or at least 13 years ago, you did. So we moved down here and, you know, We're both Northern California kids, so we're very skeptical about Los Angeles because Northern Californians have this whole attitude about Southern California, and
0: it's not completely unfounded. Some of the rumors are true. Can I just say, isn't it just like all countries that have that North-South divide? I don't know what it is,
1: and there are parts that are true to it, but when we got down here, we just found we loved it. We got really lucky. We ended up on a small cul-de-sac full of these just wonderfully creative people who were working in there. It wasn't a hobby. Like up in San Francisco, people had jobs and then they had creative hobbies. And when we came down to LA, it was like people were working in their creative business and we just loved that. And that was actually when I decided to go back to school and get my degree in writing. And I don't know how much I should go into my journey from there. I mean, it gets much more detailed from there. <laughs> That's the fun thing about long form, go wherever you want to go. Wherever we want to go. So I guess when I was pregnant with my daughter, We'd finished making that film that I produced with my husband and I needed to find a job, but I was visibly pregnant. And it's very hard to find a job when you're visibly pregnant, which I know there are laws about hiring. Mm. And maybe if I was like some super high qualified physicist or something, it wouldn't have mattered. But when you're applying for like a secretarial position or an administrative assistant, if there are two equal candidates, the one who's not pregnant is going to get the job. (laughs) So I just had a hell of a time getting employed. And when I had nothing to do all day, I ended up just writing short stories and loving it. And that was kind of an illumination for me, this moment of like, I really enjoy this. I wonder if I could do this for a living. Like, I wonder if I could be a writer. Is that really a thing I could do? So when we moved down here, I decided to go for it. And I applied to a writing program at University of Southern California and got in. And it, it worked out really nicely because it was close to where we lived and we had a nanny who would come for a few hours so I could go to class. So I got my master's in 2010 when I was pregnant with my son. So I started off my writing career with two small children, a toddler and a newborn, and I was working freelance. And then my best freelance client asked me to come on full-time and this was in marketing. I've been listening to some of your podcasts and that idea of marketing and how you reach people That you're not just trying to sell because the company I ended up working for is actually a marketing and PR company for local governments.
0: Mm. So they're
1: not so much trying to sell as just get their messages out. Particularly, we worked with a lot of small cities that had PR problems. There had been some kind of scandal and we were kind of helping them rebuild their image. And justifiably, like there are a lot of good people in local government. And then there's always that one guy who has to steal from offers and ruin everyone's opinion of everybody else. So that was the work I did for five years after I graduated. And it was great experience. We can talk more about that, too. I love the way you talk about marketing in terms of messaging, finding the right words and the challenge of like when you're writing a novel You have hundreds of pages to get the idea across. If you're writing marketing copy, you have a few words. And that is such a challenge. And I enjoyed it for years. And then I ended up taking a job as a technical writer at an engineering company here in Southern California. And then that's interesting. You know, it was because it tied in with my training with marine ecology and science. And I told my kids I was a nerd translator because (laughs) I love nerds. And the company had these like fantastically smart people and probably half of them, English wasn't even their first language. And they would put together these proposals for local governments of how they were going to repair their water systems. And water is a big issue in California too, particularly Southern California steals a lot of water from Northern California. It can get very political. So they would write these proposals and they were illegible and not just for a language. Like if someone was from another country, it was the math English translation that got lost. It was like they couldn't switch out of the math brain enough to like make it a compelling story. So they hired me to to do that part.
0: I love that math to English.
1: Yeah, it's a thing, but it ended up not being a great fit. I ended up being really lonely in that job. I worked in like a windowless room all by myself and I had to commute. They had told me I could work from home. This is you know years ago, of course, before everyone was working from home. With the commute, I was leaving when my kids woke up and I was getting home right as they were going to bed. And I just, I got really depressed. I missed them. I was not enjoying the work anymore. So I kind of hit a wall thankfully my husband at that point was at a place where I could quit my job and focus on fiction so I did that and I finished my novel and I actually finished it in 2017 but it came out in end of February 2020 which turns out is like the worst time in history to release a book
0: <laughs> oh
1: oops <laughs> <laughs> oops yeah no one could have called that it's not the publisher's fault
0: but it's been a very interesting year yeah well, I believe you <laughs> So I'm interested in how, how did you start writing short stories?
1: You know, it's funny. I wrote a few just little snippets of ideas or anecdotes that never really went anywhere because they weren't very good. But the idea I really enjoyed is actually the basis for the novel that I'm finishing up now. It became my second novel. I mean, my daughter's 13 now, so this would have been 14 years ago. I was playing with this idea and I loved the idea, but I didn't know what I was doing. and it's. I made the right choice in choosing not to write it as my first novel because it actually was a complex idea and I had played with it enough to know that it was a complex idea. So for my first novel, which is 142 Ostriches, that's the title, it's very straightforward narrative. It follows one young woman for about 10 days of her life. It's first person point of view, nothing tricky about it. And it took me eight years to write it because I was learning to write a novel as I went and blogging about it along the way, which actually turned out to be a really fun journey. Writers named my blog one of the best websites for writers a couple years ago, but because I would blog about all my missteps, so I would write something and then realize, oh, that wasn't good. And then I would blog about how I discovered that it wasn't good. And then I would go about fixing it. And it just was this very long journey. But then once I got through that, I had been tinkering with this other idea for so long that I had an outline that by the time I actually turned to it, it was almost 60 pages long. I had been thinking about it for so long that all I had to do was fill in the scene work, basically. Not that it's that simple ever, (laughs) but I wrote it in about a year and a half. I just like poured out of me because it had been percolating in my brain for so long. Now I'm rewriting and rewriting and rewriting. And I'm actually, I think I might be on my last pass. I just got a set of notes from a few readers and I'm getting close to done with this one.
0: Congratulations. Thank you. I am, I think, a quarter of the way through 142 ostriches. And I got the audiobook and you got me giggling because I was listening to it just before speaking to you today. There's a passage where you describe what's the name of the main ostrich? The one that was the favorite of the Abigail Abigail of Abigail really enjoying the hose being hosed around and how and it's really interesting I find it fascinating how good writing can propel us in the scenery so here I am in Geneva going from my recycling station to grocery shopping and as I'm turning a corner I now have this vision of an ostrich running around (laughs) (laughs) Being hosed down, and it's really cute. It stayed with me, so thanks for making me giggle. So,
1: of course, you know I love that about audiobooks. So this last weekend, I was working out in my garden, and I remember that the last time I'd spent any good amount of time out in my garden, I'd been listening to this book, The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue, which I loved. But I didn't have my headphones in, and I was out in my garden this last weekend, and I could remember the scenes I was listening to as I like moved from one part of my yard to the other. I could almost see it again. It's amazing how those things get stored in your head.
0: Oh, completely. So you're going
1: to see that ostrich every time.
0: I'll let you know if that's the case and I'll send you a picture (laughs) of the corner. (laughs) So I was going to ask you, I've asked you about writing. I want to know about your meditation. Yeah. But I guess that there's an in-between anyway. Is it possible that over the course of the last few years, part of what made your blogging so interesting is that you had a different lens to look at your writing from? thanks to your meditation and mindfulness practice? Absolutely, yes. It's
1: something I've thought a lot about, actually. And so where I've landed recently is with this new group. A friend of mine and I co-founded a group called The Very Important Meeting, and it's a mindful writing group. And the way that that came about was in recognizing the impact that meditation has had on my writing. Because, I mean, I struggled as a writer for a decade before I really kind of got any traction. And there are a lot of factors in that. Part of it is just persistence and getting better at your craft. But then I couldn't deny that when I got more serious about my meditation is when my writing really started to take off. And I think part of that is I became better at editing myself. I became better at actually seeing what was on the page as opposed to what was in my mind and noticing when they didn't match up and when I needed to do more on the page to make it feel like it felt inside my head and inside my body. And then also just the mental health aspects. One of the reasons I got serious about meditation is that when I left that job, I was so depressed and I was drinking too much and I just was a mess. And so getting my personal life together, meditation was so key in that. And then when you do that, all of a sudden, I don't know, when you drink late into the night, it's very hard to get up and write in the morning. <laughs> and when you actually go to bed at a normal hour and get up and meditate for a few minutes, all of a sudden, writing just comes and it has been such a game changer for me. Uh, and I'm happy to talk about some of the specifics of it because when I sat down to think about how I might want to teach meditation, and this was part of our class, right? When we had to teach the second part of our practicum, when we had a more in depth talk, I thought about how has meditation actually affected my writing? And I actually made a list of like bullet points of like, it helped me in this way and this way. Very quantifiable things it turned out. And I was actually surprised that I could delineate it so clearly. And that little list kind of became the outline for the Mindful Writer workshop I've been teaching. Right now it's a workshop. I'm thinking about making it a class.
0: You should. Can we go back one step? How and when did you get introduced to meditation? I have to tell you, as an outsider, (laughs) not knowing everything about California, I can see California hippies, although I'm thinking that's more the southern (laughs) side, (laughs) not the northern. Oh, it's both. Oh, it's both. Oh, Oh, it's both. So it's not surprising to me that a Californian is meditating. But so how did you get started?
1: I think if you ask Californians, they would tell you it's more of a northern California thing because that's where more of the hippies ended up. Like UC Berkeley is up there and, Ah. and you had the whole movement in San Francisco of free love and all of this, yes, California has kind of a reputation for new age thinking. And there's good reason for that. A lot of the first Westerners who went over and seriously studied and came back, came back to New York and California. And so there's a contingent in New York, but there's also like Jack Cornfield came back to California and he founded this group called Spirit Rock up in Northern California, which is the first place I ever sat to meditate. It's so beautiful up there. It's in these like rolling grassy hills. It just feels peaceful. You walk into the grounds and you're like, this place is amazing. My husband and I, let's see, I think we were newly married and we were just curious, and Spirit Rock was offering once a month they do a free day long with whatever teacher is available to do it. And I went online, I signed up for. It, I was like, oh, this guy Jack Cornfield seems nice. I did a free day long with Jack Cornfield without even like realizing what a big deal Jack Cornfield was. I'm so jealous. <laughs> it was pretty great, and had just a really kind of amazing experience. I think a lot of early meditators have that experience where like, you get super blissed out. and You're like, this is the best. I'm going to do this every day. And then you go home and you meditate and you're like, it's not happening. Why isn't it happening? I'm doing it wrong. Why am I feeling blissful? And then you come to like realize that actually meditation isn't just about having your mind clear and feeling super blissful. There's a lot to it. And I think that I found kind of discouraging, as many beginning meditators do. And so for years, I was very off again, on again. I would occasionally go in for, like, I think my husband and I did like a Wednesday night class series once where we went for a few Wednesdays or something. But I was not that serious about it. And it wasn't until I really hit that rough patch in my life where I was just so down and really struggling. And again, I think that's kind of where a lot of people come back to meditation is you need help with something. We're struggling with something and we're looking for answers. And for me, it was very helpful. There was a program here through a organization that class called The Meaningful Life. And it was, I guess, stringent isn't quite the word because it was meditation and it came from a place of deep caring. But the teacher kind of took no nonsense. And when you signed up for this class, you were going to meditate every morning. You called in, And it was a 25-minute meditation every morning. And then we met every other weekend as a group. And there were probably 30 of us. And I think I just needed that discipline. And then once I started meditating every day, I started to really understand more what I was experiencing. you, You have the goods, but you also have the bads. And you start to feel some of your emotions in ways that you didn't understand before. And then some understanding creeps in. And yeah, just that was when things shifted for me. Did you start with insight meditation? It was insight meditation because that's what Jack was teaching in Spirit Rock. And Spirit Rock has been the place I've gone back to. I've done, I think, three silent retreats, like residential retreats now. You know, you go on vacation and you're like, I'm just going to relax and recuperate. And you come home feeling more frazzled than when you left. But when you go on meditation retreat, you actually have that experience of like, you put your phone in your car and you leave it there. You don't talk to anyone you just sit quietly and it's so rejuvenating. I have been dying to go on retreat again and, and they're all closed down right now, of course, because of COVID. Yeah. But as soon as they reopen, I can't wait to go back into another.
0: I was actually scheduled to do one last year in at Spirit Rock oh. in May. Oh yeah. Oh. I had to cancel my flight and everything. I was then rebooked oh. for maybe November and then yeah.
1: Well, when you get there, you'll see. It's a wonderful place. You'll love it.
0: Yeah. The reason I ask is because my way in wasn't via insight. It was via loving kindness. And it was very random. I sat through one group class, while on holiday, and I don't know why, but the teacher at the end said, imagine how powerful it would be if someone were to do this every day. In my head, I went, challenge accepted. <laughs> and I don't know why I did it every day. And I was sharing this with another teacher a few months ago. I was doing a detox with only food and veg that are non-inflammatory. And so they had also prescribed me infrared sauna. And so it was very much the multitasker. <laughs> I decided that I was going to do the meditation in the sauna. Yeah. Damn. What else are you going to do? Yeah. <laughs> well, it turns out it's a little bit challenging, FYI, <laughs> for 30
1: minutes. I would think so, actually. Yeah. The duration and probably the physical discomfort, it gets hot in there. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. Okay. <laughs> because I also studied, I did my 200 hour yoga teacher training. I then ended up also going down the route of other kinds of meditations. And I have to say that I like to have experienced and seen different panels. So you were mentioning earlier that having reshuffled your life and got into meditation, you ended up getting up early in the morning to write. And I read in your bio, which was very entertaining. You <laughs> keep writing fiction. She bought a coffee machine with a timer, you say, and set it to start brewing at 450 every morning so that you could write in the wee hours before the rest of the family woke. And this went on for years. Now I have to ask, so you weren't an early riser before that. Oh my God. How did you make it? And this is still when I was drinking too. It was painful. It was really painful.
1: And then it's amazing what the human body can adjust to. It really is. I went about it all wrong. Like if anyone is interested in getting up early to write, I actually wrote a whole blog post about it. I you Google how to get up early to write, even if you're a night owl. I think that's the title of it. But the things I did wrong is again, this was like the theme of my blog of like things I did wrong and how I figured out that you can do it better. So I had this idea because I was working full time and I had two small kids. I had not a lot of time. And I found that if I went to work as a technical writer or a marketing writer before I tried to do my creative writing, there was nothing left when I got home. And so I made the executive decision that, you know, when you wake up, you have a certain amount of energy for the day. And I was like, I'm going to use it on my writing first. And so I set my alarm and I would get up and I would write and then I would go to work and my employers would get my less enthusiastic writing. Not that they ever noticed I did fine, but it was the only time I could carve out. The first mistake I made was that I tried to do it every other day. I thought I was being kind to myself. Ah. I was like, I'll just do every other day. And then I can sleep in a little bit every other day. And my body just never adjusted. And I felt like I was ping-ponging all over. I was so frazzled and tired. And it wasn't until I committed to do it six days a week, I would get up, my alarm would go off, and I would smell the coffee. I'd go up like a zombie and get my coffee. And then I would write in my journal while I drank my coffee. And then as I was writing, my pen would start going a little faster. I'd be like, okay, I got the caffeine. I'm ready to go. And then I would pull out the novel and I would write until the first kid woke up. Sometimes that was 20 minutes. Sometimes that was an hour and I took whatever I could get. And I did that for years and it was painful, (laughs) but it did get easier. Once I had like found a rhythm with it and it just became something I did and I didn't have to think too much about it. It did get easier.
0: I'm full of admiration. (laughs) I'm a big sleeper. Yeah. Especially now that I'm
1: writing full time. And this year has been crazy, of course, but Before COVID, I could drop the kids at school and come back and write. And so for a while, I stopped getting up early because I was like, I don't have to anymore. But I find that it's still my best writing time. I think I did it for so many years that I just trained myself for that to be my creative time. So now I get up early again.
0: I was thinking Pavlov's dog. You conditioned yourself to go there. Mm, Amazing.
1: So like the Pavlov dog's idea. That's actually how I made meditation more regular in my life, too, because I had this mm-hmm. regular routine of I get my coffee, I write in my journal, and then I would start writing. And so, what I did was I just slipped meditation right into the middle there. So, I would get my coffee, write in my journal, and then I turn to my cushion, which is right here by my desk, and I sit down. So, now as I finish my journal writing, I'm like, okay, now it's time to sit. And it's become, again, the routine of it has become so set that I don't have to think about it so much anymore. Not that patterns don't get mm. disrupted from time to time, but I have found that routine to work really well for me.
0: I resonate with that a lot. I find that the more you can ritualize certain behaviors, the easier it is to just slip into them. And instead of asking yourself questions about, I yeah. should be doing X, Y, Z. What do I
1: do now? What should I do with my day? Exactly. Like, I don't want to think yeah. about it. I love my routine. That's been the hardest thing about COVID for me is it just jacked
0: up all my routines. Well, I can just about imagine. Mm. So I was going to ask you about the process of publishing your first book, because I'm guessing it's pretty different from simply the writing process. How did that happen for you? It's a good question. Where to start? I guess with finishing the manuscript,
1: I finished it at the end of 2017. And one of the things I would do when I wasn't feeling creative enough to write is I would work on my list of dream agents. So I had a list of agents so one of the things you can do, if you read a book you really love, they will always thank their agent in the acknowledgement. So you can turn to the back and say, I'd like to thank my agent, so-and-so. And then I would research them and see what kind of books they represented and either put them on my list or not. So I had a list of like 30 agents that I thought would be a good fit for my book and that I would want to work with. And then as I was finishing my manuscript, I ranked them. So like my top choice and down on through 30. And my plan was, I wrote up my cover letter, basic template, but I planned to customize it. And my plan was that I would send out five queries to agents. And then when I got a rejection, I wouldn't worry too much. I take like the rest of the day to mourn it and cry and whine about it. And then I would just send out to the next person on the list. This is a plan that one of my teachers suggested to me. And I was like, I'm in for that. I'm all about spreadsheets and get it organized because that helps for me to manage the inevitable disappointments that are just part of being a writer. There will be a rejection. There will be, I don't know, tears. (laughs) There will be tears. So I sent out my first five query letters on a Monday. And I think it was in February of 2018 that I did this. And customizing each one of like, here's where I found your name. And here's why I think you'd be a good match. And then there was the blurb about my book. And a little bit about me is like, you're supposed to have her query letter. There's a structure to these things. And then I just like chewed my nails waiting for a response. And my number one pick came back and said, oh, it sounds interesting. Send it over, which is like, never happened. Amazing. Never happened. So I sent him the manuscript and on Friday, he offered to be my agent. He's like, I want to wreck this. It was... <laughs> I mean, it was unheard of. Yeah. What a great story. It was really exciting. And then of course I was over the moon about it and he was talking about like, we're going to have a bidding war. We're going to go to New York. And he was so excited about the project. There was one other agent who actually did respond as well, but she was much more lukewarm about it. She's like, yeah, kind of like your project. I was like, no, you're not even competing with this guy. He is so excited about it. So Then the rejections came. (laughs) He started sending it out and it just got pass after pass after pass, which is part of the gate. Like if you don't get rejections in one spot, you're going to get them somewhere else. So he sent it out over and over. We kept getting no's. And I asked him at some point, I was like, well, should I edit? Should I rewrite? And he said, you know, if we were getting the same feedback every time, I would have you edit before we sent it out. But we were getting feedback like love the characters, but not the story. And then the next one will be like, love the story, but not the character. And he's like, it just has to find its home. It has to find the editor who loves it. And that ended up being a gentleman named John Sconamilia at Kensington Books. They generally don't do a lot of literary fiction. They do cozy mysteries and romance novels and things like that. But he has his own part of it where he gets to choose just because he loves it, even if it doesn't quite fit in with their model.
0: Oh, amazing.
1: So he picked mine and we went from there. And then you start to marvel at like how long the publishing process is because that was July of 2018 and they already had their 2019 spring books You know, they planned that far in advance because it said on a ranch, they wanted it to be a spring book. I guess ranch stories sell better in the spring. They know, I don't know. So they said, we want it to be our spring 2020 lineup. And I said, great. And I went on to like work on my next novel and jumping back and forth because there's a lot of editing process. They send you notes, you send revisions. There's a lot of back and forth. And then all the prep work leading up, I planned out the book tour. I had all these people I was going to visit and bookstores I was going to talk at. And then the book came out on February 25th when people were just starting to get nervous about COVID, like people were starting to notice it was coming to the States. Cases were starting to build. And on like the third day of my book tour, it was officially declared pandemic and like everything just shut down. So I had to cancel Mm. the book tour, which was very disappointing. But over the months that came, pretty much everyone who canceled ended up moving online. So I was supposed to be part of the San Diego Festival of Books. And they had to cancel, but then they ended up moving online. So I was part of their online festival. I did a reading. I mean, I actually ended up doing more things than I probably would have done in person. There was a book club in New Jersey. There's no way I ever would have flown to New Jersey just for a book club, but to like zoom in with them was really fun. So I actually ended up meeting a lot of people, talking about the book quite a bit. It was an unusual book launch experience, but it is what it is at this point.
0: That's fantastic. I do need to ask you, what is your experience with ostriches? Where did that come from? (laughs) That's a good question. So it actually,
1: so the story is much more about the family. If you're, you're listening to it, you know, at this point, it's much more about the
0: family. I mean, right now I'm at the funeral and it's all kicking off.
1: Yeah. And so it's, about the family dealing with the death of the matriarch, but it's set on this ostrich ranch, which my main character has inherited. And the reason that all came about is I was actually working on a travel piece. And this is, I think when I was still in grad school, even I did some travel writing and I went out to this ostrich farm to write the travel piece. And I was just starting to work on my novel. And when I got there, I was trying to decide where I wanted to set it when I stepped out of the car at the ostrich ranch, the birds are so bizarre. They're like just this study in contradiction. You know, they're beautiful and deadly. They have these giant eyelashes that like, I don't know, they're like supermodel eyelashes. And then their legs are this horrible, scaly, just awful texture. They're just, there's so much about them that just doesn't mesh and for me that was the perfect metaphor for family of like you can love them and then <laughs> they come to visit and you're like why did i invite them <laughs> this it's just conflict and contradiction and the, and that experience of holding two things at the same time and i thought this is it this is where i'm going to put my book and the guy who ran the Asha grant was so friendly and i think he was kind of lonely so it was just him out on the ranch by himself. And so I had thought I'd do like a one hour tour for this piece I was writing. And I ended up standing out there like all day talking with him. And he told me all these anecdotes and probably like 80% of the plot points in the book actually come from anecdotes that he told me about the ranch. And it just kind of took off from there. Yeah. That makes sense. I didn't start with any great affinity for ostriches, but I I know a lot about them now.
0: (laughs) Clearly. (laughs) That's really wonderful. Well, I'm looking forward to the rest of it. So that's the good news. (laughs) I hope you enjoy it. Last week, I interviewed a really wonderful wellness specialist. She's a naturopathic nutritionist. She lectures in London and she's also a personal trainer. And she was telling me about how hard it had been for her over the past 12 months to actually put any time into fiction. Mm -hmm. I was wondering Mm -hmm. if this is something that came up maybe over the time that you We're talking on book tours. I mean, on the Zoom version of the book tour. The reason I'm thinking about this is obviously because Karis mentioned that last week and she did recommend a book that she couldn't put down. And I read your blog post about the freedom of putting a book down. So I feel personally very unencumbered by the fact there are at least five books that are not finished by the side of my bed. (laughs) So what did your audience have to say around that?
1: It was interesting. I heard from a lot of people and I experienced it too, that reading was really hard, particularly in the most of 2020. People found reading hard. It was hard to focus. I experienced that too. Most of the books I was reading, I just couldn't, I don't know, my brain was very scattered. The one way I was able to get back into it was I went to my daughter's YA fantasy bookshelf and that was my sweet spot. I needed total escapism. And I think it was just about finding what worked for you. Because like once I found that, I was just devouring books again. What I needed was some escapism. I've talked to some people who are like, I needed nonfiction. I needed concrete answers to things that I could understand. And that was their way of coping. But it seems like most people have kind of come through that fog and people are starting to read again. I mean, I had like my best friend, she emailed me and she's like, I'm so sorry, I haven't read your book yet, but I just, I can't focus. And this was... You know, my book had been out for six months and I was like, how could I be mad? Like, we're dealing with all this together. It was hard for a lot of people. And then writing was particularly hard, trying to be creative. Some people just blossomed. I've heard some writers say that it was great time for them. I think they probably don't have children. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It was not an easy time for me. It took me a while to get back into actually drafting. But the nice thing was that I had a draft of this novel. So when I did get back to it, I was editing, which for me, that's an easier thing to do with more distraction. Mm-hmm. First drafts are for me, I really, like I need quiet. That's when I'm more inclined to get up at 5am because I just I need quiet. I need to know that no one's expecting a phone
0: call or an email or just, I really need that space mm. for first draft. That's interesting. I was about to ask you about editing actually, because I read your blog post about it. I think I read that on LinkedIn before I even contacted you. It piqued my interest because in it you tie in right view, which is a mindfulness yeah. concept as a tool for better editing. And so I wanted, if you don't mind, for you to explain that to our listeners. How did you find this mindfulness tool help you in the editing process?
1: Yeah, this was one of those things I was mentioning that was really revelatory for me in how mindfulness has affected writing because particularly when we're writing fiction and we're writing more or less alone. I mean, some people have writer groups or whatever, but it's us in the page. And we have this vision of what we want the story to be. And it's in our head, at least for myself, I can see the environment. I know what I want it to be. And I'll write it down. Like the woman walked into the room. Like, that, well, that tells the reader almost nothing, right? If I write the woman walked into the room, in my head, I'm seeing like, Maybe it's this gorgeous gleaming kitchen with marble countertops and canned lighting and every fancy appliance you could ever imagine. And there's a dog running around and I can hear the birds chirping. It's a very modern day Cinderella kind of kitchen. And what does she look like? Is she a 13-year-old girl? Is she an older woman? Is she a grandmother? There's so much that isn't on the page if you write The Woman Walked Into the Kitchen. But when I was starting out as a writer and I would read my own work, I didn't notice that distinction. So, and that idea of right view, as you know, and mindfulness is seeing things as they are in the present moment. And that that is a training that we can work on. And so now when I used to read the word, say, as an example, the woman walked into the kitchen, I would bring so much mental imagery to it that I thought that that was what's on the page. Now I'm exaggerating a little bit here, but to get the point, but what we overlay And that's true in so much of our lives, right? If my husband says, you didn't load the dishwasher, what I hear is, (laughs) two decades of resentment about me being lazy with the dishes and I bring all this emotional overlay to the conversation instead of, oh, I got busy taking care of the boy and I didn't get to it. Like that would be the simple answer. That's the right view version of that. And the same applies to our writing. So if we can actually see what's on the page and say like, oh, is that what I wanted it to be? Is that what I'm seeing in my head? Oh, not at all. And then you have the opportunity to actually make it what's in your head. And I think the example I gave in the blog post was an edit I was doing on my current project where I open the story with a storm. And I think my first sentence was just the most boring sentence. It was something like, it was raining. I mean, is there a more boring sentence than it was raining? <laughs> well, so I, I re edited it. I think I have it right here. And what I landed on was, and this is not done, it's not perfect, but fat, unrelenting rain pummeled the earth and left divots in the mud. So you can see how like that is much more what's in my head when I say, oh, it's raining because now we're outdoors. You know, it's, it's one of those heavy rains. It's not a sprinkle. I'm starting to give some details of what I'm actually seeing in my head. And they can only do that because I can actually see what's on the page as it is.
0: That feels really powerful. I read in your blog post something about context. In general, I find that very much to your point. Context is setting the scene. Context is giving a background, yeah. insights into the motivations. I mean, I'm not sure how you approach it as a fiction writer, but I've understood that in order for a story to feel more compelling, giving it context tends to bring it to life in a way mm-hmm. that the sole representation of the police or the person as they are is not going to go as far into bringing people into the story we're trying to tell.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. The thing that comes to mind is like when you go to a museum and they give you the little description of where the artist was in their career and how this piece fits in with exactly what you're saying. Mm -hmm. And it's funny, I haven't thought about that as much. And when you're writing fiction, I think context is most important to explain motivation for later down the road. So in those early pages, you are basically establishing a character who has certain ways in which they respond to the world so that later when the dramatic points of the story come, we understand why they make the choices that they do. In terms of context in general, when I think about, say, writing a blog post or something that's a shorter format, maybe nonfiction, I think it's simply like what you said about the narrative, that as humans, narrative is how we make sense of our lives. We, we're constantly telling ourselves stories about why things are, how things are. I mean. You look at any religion, it's about organizing our principles through story. And story is much more compelling if it has a context.
0: Yeah, I think story also tells the why. So very much to your point about how you build a character, it fills in part of the blanks, essentially. It's the why. It's yeah, you know, it's the Simon Sinek thing. It's the it's the why, the why, the why.
1: It's funny because I just was thinking as you said that, how whenever I read a blog post that I like, the next thing I click on is the bio link. Because I want to know about the author. I'm like, oh, how did they get there? How is this a thought that they're having and writing about?
0: Ah. I absolutely do that. Actually, I really liked your bio. Well done. Thank you. <laughs> do Thank you, know you what I like the most is the fact you open with a video to tell people how your name is pronounced. Do you want to give us... <laughs> April Davila.
1: People get very creative with the Davila. My maiden name was Collier, and no one ever got that wrong. But people get very creative with Davila. <laughs> really? How do they pronounce it? Davia, Davila, and then they get nervous that they're saying it wrong, so then they'll put the emphasis like the da, villa, they like they break it into two words. I don't know. When I first started doing my book tour, I did an interview on NPR, and the woman I talked to, she was like just put it on your website because it's you know, something everyone who does anything audio with you is going to want to know how to pronounce it right. Just put it on your website.
0: So I did that. By the way, given how my last name is spelled, I am taking a leaf from your book and I'm going to do it as well. It's helpful to people. I mean, I look up
1: people's names like, and you'll find that people who have challenging names know this. And if you go to, it's either in their bio or in their kit link. Very funny.
0: Now, a couple of weeks ago already, I attended half only of your mindful writers workshop because of the yeah. time difference. And I was really fascinated by the process. I enjoyed your teaching style, first Thank and you. foremost. And I think that even as a newly certified meditation teacher myself, I always love how every person has a different way, their own language, their own choice of words that can. Open up different opportunities of discovery. So that's why I really like discovering a plethora of teachers because I feel like I always get something new. I agree. I think you touched a little bit about how you put it together, but maybe you can talk to us a little as to how the meditation process, as you teach it, can open up the writing for the people who participate in the workshops.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. So the basic idea is to learn to treat our writing or whatever creative work we're doing as the meditation. So the way that I teach it in the workshop is I'll have people do a basic insight meditation, mindfulness of thought, where we sit quietly and you just become aware of where your brain goes to. And you come back to the anchor that you've chosen, usually the breath, And when your mind wanders, you know, okay, I'm planning dinner or, okay, I'm thinking about that email I need to write. And then you just come back to the anchor. And then what I try to do with this little time in between is transition into a writing exercise so that people are writing with a goal in mind, like I'll give them a prompt of some kind. And the, the challenge of the exercise is to write the prompt, and at the same time, notice where their mind goes to. Because what happens right around the age four or five, we become more critical. You can watch it happen in preschools where kids will suddenly decide that they're not good painters or they're not good artists or they're not good singers because they can see paintings and they're like, well, my painting doesn't look like that. So I'm not a good painter. Or they try to draw a person and because they have not practiced very much, their person doesn't look like the person. And so they, well, I'm not good at that. And our critical mind really starts to kick in around that age. And that's when most people stop being creative which is a shame because I think everybody has some sort of creative thing that they would like to do. It doesn't have to be professionally, but a creative outlet of some sort. And it can get really shut down because of that inner critic. And then what I tell my students is that anytime you've had the experience of writing a sentence and then deleting it and writing it again and deleting it, you may not even know, but that is your inner critic saying, that sucked, you better start over. And so the exercise that I lead them through is As they start writing, they're not allowed to like delete and go back. They have to keep writing and notice when your brain says, well, that sucked. You should probably delete it. No, I'm just going to thank you for your opinion. You can go now. You give a little internal bow and you just keep writing. And I have found that to be one of the most transformative things in terms of meditation in my writing, getting that first draft on the page, noticing your inner critic, simply giving a bow to it and saying, I hear you. And I'm just going to choose to ignore you right now and keep writing. And just, you know, just like you just put her in her chair, you put her over there, <laughs> and you keep writing. And then the other part of that, the flip side of that coin is you can't get rid of her completely because that little voice is what allows you to edit what's on the page. So when you bring that idea of right view and I read that sentence and that inner critic says, well, that's not what it's supposed to be like. Oh, you're right. What do I want it to be? So you need that inner critic, but you can't let it dominate when you're just trying to get that creative first draft done. So for me, I have to really space out my first draft and my edit. And I try to work through start to finish. I'll do a draft. And then I engage my critic and I read it through and I make all the notes. And then I have to put her aside again. It's a real back and forth. But the more mindful I can be of the transition, the less I suffer, which is kind of a key tenet of Buddhism. And the better my work is and the
0: faster I write, the better. Well, I got to tell you the day after the workshop, I just couldn't stop myself writing. (laughs) I had ideas pouring out of me the following morning for the first hour and a half of two hours of the day, which was completely unexpected. But I realized I was better to just let everything out, as you said, instead of trying to understand what it is that I was doing. And a couple of days ago, I attended an online class with a New York-based yoga studio. And we had an hour-long asana and meditation practice. And I didn't think anything of it. (laughs) But then I sat down at the piano because I still do sing and play. And I rocked my own world, I've got to be honest. (laughs) That's so awesome. It was so surprising because I think often as I don't write my own music and I'm performing other people's work, one of the pieces that becomes really important is to make it mine. My goal is not to sound like someone else. And sometimes that means going further into the twisting and then changing and the molding. Yeah. And that's a really, really tough thing to do. I have to be honest. So yeah, I can imagine. As much as I'd realized before all of the benefits of meditation, I don't think I had at all Understood the levels to which it could help me creatively. And that came thanks to you. Oh,
1: I'm so flattered. That's wonderful. I love that feeling of flow when the critic finally gets the message and just sits down and they're just going with it. I mean, I could write all day when I hit that point. I mean, not that I ever get to write all day, but I love that feeling. That's
0: wonderful. So I think that you can tell us a little bit about your project called Very Important Meeting. It's called A Very Important Meeting
1: and it actually came out of the pandemic. So I had invited some writer friends to join me on a Zoom call on Friday mornings. This was after lockdown had started, kind of just desperate for some social time, but I also wanted to write. So I had a few writer friends, I invited them to come on a Zoom call and I led a little 10 minute meditation and then we wrote for about an hour and then we chatted and it was just the most lovely. I just left it feeling so good that we did it again the next week. And so it became a regular Friday thing. And then I found out a woman I had met at AWP, her name's Paulette Perhatch, she was doing the same thing on Saturday mornings. We decided to join forces because we actually started attending each other's groups and then we started subbing for each other. Like if she was camping, I would cover her Saturday morning class. And we started asking the people who were in the groups, you know, how could we make this more useful for you? And they said more meetings. Sometimes Friday mornings and Saturday mornings aren't necessarily always the best time. And then we were like, we should maybe just expand this. Let's go for it. And so we brought in a friend of mine who's in New York. His name's Matthew Perez. And we set up a schedule and a website. And so now we are hosting 14 free, it's totally free, it's donation-based, mindful writing groups. And everyone has the same structure. We meditate for 10 minutes. We go immediately into our writing. And then after the hour is up, we hang out and chat for a few minutes if we want to, if people have time. And it has been such a lifeline through the pandemic and such a way to connect with writers all over the world. We've had writers from Australia and Hong Kong and all over the United States and Europe. And it's been such an exciting thing. People really respond to it that we hear all the time of like, I get my best writing done in these sessions or, oh, I had this idea I didn't even know I had. And my dad comes, he's working on his third memoir and he's like, this is the most productive writing time I have all week is that he comes on the Friday morning once. Yeah. That's amazing. So it's been great. And actually we just added a new teacher. Her name is Faith. I saw that.
0: I got the email today.
1: Oh, good. Yeah, she's fantastic. So now we're up to 16. Starting next week, we'll be at 16 meetings a week. And I think I talked to you briefly about this once before, but it's interesting in the context of mindfulness and communication and business and that nexus of ideas because there were two main challenges. One, that it would be free because writers go through periods where they can't afford to pay for anything. And we want this to always be a resource that people can come to. And then the other thing was that we wouldn't ask anyone to work for free because writers are always being asked to work for exposure. And the phrase I like is people die from exposure. You should never write for exposure. (laughs) That's excellent. Thank you. (laughs) So the challenge there though, of course, is that if you offer something for free, how are you paying the writers that are leading the meetings? And People have been so generous. We ask for $5 a meeting if you can afford it. And we don't check who gives. We don't tally up who gave at what meeting. We just have a PayPal account and people send money if they want to. And they show up for meetings when they want to. And I would say like 90% of people throw $5 out for when they come to a meeting. And that basic amount of reciprocity has allowed us to hire first Matthew and now Faith. And we're hoping if people continue to come and be generous, that we can keep growing this. I this dream of having around the clock mindful writing groups have teachers in Europe and in Asia and all around. So that like, if you woke up in California at three in the morning and couldn't sleep, you can log on and write with whatever group was.
0: That's such a lovely idea. Congratulations. It's been fantastic. Thank you. How did you put the word out? That's probably the hardest part.
1: Paulette and I both had newsletters so we sent the word out to our newsletters and then social media and then asking friends to tell friends. We got a few people when I did a talk at an online writing festival, I did a, a talk on how plot informs story and we were just starting it then. And so I pitched it to the group and we got a few people who came in, mostly word of mouth, people who come and they really enjoy it and they tell their friends.
0: And yeah. Well, clearly they liked it. That's really wonderful. I was going to ask you about the tip jar at the bottom of some of your blog posts. Oh yeah, I wanted to talk about what is your advice for writers to get them paid for their work better? Yeah, that's a good question. Before we move on, I just want to put out that if anyone's interested in
1: joining, it's com, and everybody's welcome all the time. So just putting that out there for everybody. Sure. In terms of getting paid for writing it, Takes time. I mean, that has been my experience when I was pregnant with my daughter and writing short stories and had the idea that maybe I could be a writer. I started looking at how do you get paid to be a writer? And there's no quick way to do it. And I'll share my story. That's probably the easiest. So I started by writing website content for my friends and family. And so when I say you shouldn't write for exposure, I think the one exception is when you're really, really just starting out, pick one or two friends who need help with their website and write the website content. And then build a website for yourself, start blogging, list them as clients. I would say every client I got when I was freelancing, including the client that I ended up hiring full-time with, said to me at some point, Oh, I read your blog and I really liked your work. And that's why we hired you. So the blog is the easiest way to represent yourself as a writer, simply by writing. And the other trick that it took me a while to figure out as a blogger is... With rare exception, people don't really want to read your diary. I mean, unless your diary is particularly weird and interesting, try to be useful. This was like the main thing that took me a couple of years to figure out that my blog traffic started to pick up when I started sharing things that could be useful to people. Sharing my missteps as a writer, sharing my struggles as a writer, things that i found as solutions. And there's never too much of that content out there. I always hear bloggers, writers say, I would start a blog, but there's so many blogs out there. Who cares what I have to say? Like, why write anything? People care. People want to read this stuff. There are so many people out there who want to write or be creative or learn what you have to teach. Just put it up there. You'll be surprised. And the other thing you have to be is consistent. So sometimes bloggers will be really gung-ho. They set up their website and they're going to blog every other day. And then like three days later, they burn out. <laughs> so I always tell people once a month start blogging with once a month. And then if that feels manageable, make it every other week. And then if you're like, wow, I'm really jamming on this and I have the time, then every week. But don't start off super ambitious and just burn out because consistency is more important than frequency. Mm -hmm. And I think those are the steps you take to start representing yourself and then signing up for things where you can see who needs writers. So there's a newsletter called Opportunities of the Week. You can find them on Patreon. And I think it's $3 a month. She basically, this woman, Sonia, she goes online on Twitter mostly and any editor publisher or somebody who's looking for a writer, she puts it all in one newsletter and sends it out twice a week. So start scanning that of like really specific calls for like, okay, we need people of color who are talking about mental health. And you're like, wow, I can write about that. Then you send them a pitch. Mm -hmm. I only discovered that recently, but my last two clients have come off of that list. So just starting to network, starting to pay attention to who wants what, And then don't quit your day job unless you have a very supportive spouse or you've gotten to a point where the income is fairly reliable Mm. because there will be ups and downs financially in terms of getting your feet under you, writing professionally.
0: Thanks. I'm so happy to hear your advice. I was talking with a friend of mine who used to be a journalist a couple of weeks ago, and I think she should be more expensive than she is. And so I told her that. Yeah. And I've hired a lot of people in various countries. So I feel like I've got a good gauge about the value given the extent of her expertise, her taste levels, et cetera. And then what she said back to me is, you know, a lot of the time as journalists, people are told that they're expandable, that they're lucky Mm -hmm. to have a job. And so not only are they badly paid, but then, you know, it's reinforcing this mentality of you're just lucky to have this, whatever. Yeah. And so obviously I had no idea because this is not my background at all. But that's why it's been percolating at the back of my mind. The notion of how can you get a sense of your own value is yeah. something that I find is really important, especially I would say for women women writers.
1: Oh, and women tend to
0: lower their prices more quickly than men and undervalue our work more than men. I've worked with a couple of clients who do not understand the value of the people that they're paying. Yeah. So then obviously these are clients that I think is good to lose yeah. because if you have to argue constantly yeah. about why someone is worth the dollars or yeah. euros or whatever, it's probably better not to work with them.
1: And you should always too be looking at like your next client should always pay more your lowest paying client should be the one you get rid of first. Like you you should always be kind of climbing that ladder of income so that you can make more as you go along. That's how careers should work. It should be making more as you get better at your skill,
0: you get more experience. I'd love to know why you decided to enroll in the Meditation Mindfulness Teacher Certification Program. It rolls off the tongue or MMTCP.
1: It was one of those moments where I don't even know you know, I was scrolling through Instagram and I saw the ad and I was like, I'm going to do that. And this doesn't happen very often to me in life, but like, you just kind of, you're like, I'm not sure why, but that's the way I need to go. I even had like family being like, well, tell us why, why you're interested in that. And I was like, I just don't know. I just feel like that's the way I need to go right now. I think I was looking for community around my mindfulness practice. And I wasn't even sure about the teaching part yet, but I knew that there would be other people who were In a similar boat and that I would at least get to meditate with them, which was true. I still meet with my mentor group. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, I'm seeing mine tomorrow. Yeah, lovely. (laughs) So this should be a good one. What is your favorite word? I love this question because, of course, I'm a word nerd. My favorite word
1: is sequoia. It started because I went through a minor obsession with words that have all five vowels of the English language. (laughs) So, like <laughs> tambourine and dialogue and evacuation, I think that's one. And Sequoia came up because I was looking at it. And, and Sequoia as a word has a really interesting history. It's the name of the redwood, of course. And I love the Sequoia redwoods because I'm a Northern California girl and they just feel like home. But then also, the history of the word is that the tree was named after a Native American chief from, I think, like somewhere down in the Mississippi area who never even saw a Sequoia tree. It was named as kind of an homage. I think he was the guy who first put the Cherokee language on paper. I may be getting the details wrong, but just a fascinating story behind it. And I love stories. Wow, yeah. that's beautiful. What song
0: best represents you?
1: This one, I don't know if I can answer. My taste change like every time I turn on the radio or turn on my iPhone. I, I think Dance Yourself Clean by LCD Sound System if I had to choose one. That might be it.
0: Yeah. There you go. Well, you did choose one. It wasn't that hard. (laughs) What or who did you want to be when you were a little girl? I really wanted to be an astronaut. Like really, really, like all the
1: way through college. And actually I applied to go to space camp when I was a junior in college. And my manager was supposed to write my letter of recommendation and she didn't do it and she didn't tell me. So my application was incomplete and I didn't even find out until like I didn't even get a rejection letter and I was like, what happened? And they told me that she never sent in the letter. So I didn't get to go to space camp. So instead I did a lot of drugs and I never became an
0: astronaut. (laughs) (laughs) That's very funny. (laughs) What would you say to your younger self if you could send yourself a message? I think if I could talk to like my 20
1: something self, I would sit her down and give her a talk about impermanence because my 20s just, I just had this feeling that everything that happened, that was going to be my life forever. So I would get really panicky. Like I'd be waiting tables at some restaurant and be like, this is going to be my life forever. And I would panic and I would like rush to try to find another career, another job. And I think if I could just give myself one note, it would be like, you know, life has phases. You go through cycles, just, try to be a little bit patient with yourself.
0: That would be my advice. Very wise. I wish. What is the best advice that you've ever been given? You can't edit a blank page. That was the
1: advice that really turned my writing into a positive arena of just get it on the page. You can edit a pile of crap into gold, but you can't edit a blank page.
0: So get something on the page and go from there. Again, super wise. (laughs) I mean, I can see your color coded, semi color coded bookshelves behind you. But so, can I even ask what book is next to your bed or on your desk?
1: This is a challenging one, too. I have about 12 books on my bedside table. There's never fewer than about six on my bedside table because I'm always reading different books for different reasons. You know, there's the fiction that I'm reading before bed, and there's the nonfiction I'm reading as research, and there's the book I intend to get to next, and then there I get tired of that, so I switch to short stories for a little while. And so right now I have a book of Jack London short stories. I'm reading a novel called Nupamine by Leanne Betasomose Simpson. Betasomose. I'm I'm never quite sure how to say her middle name. She's Ojibwe. And it's a fascinating novel, almost poetry prose. It's all they, them pronouns, every character is a they, them. It's just a wonderfully creative book. It's called Nupamine, The Cure for White Ladies. I'm also reading The One Thing, which is a nonfiction book about like focusing on one thing, which I've actually read before, but I joined a book club and they are reading that. So I'm reading that. I'm reading a book called For the Love of Men about raising boys who can be strong without being jerks. I know no, I just started. Oh, so, and then the, I think one of the other ones on the bedside table is the Mindful Writer. I actually bought a book called The Mindful Writer because I was like, that is a book I need to read, and it's a wonderful collection of poems and and
0: things. Oh, I'm gonna order that. I'm gonna add that to my pile. It's yeah, a good one. <laughs> Who is one person you think we should all know about? This is such a great question. I thought long and hard about this one.
1: It's- there's so many. The person I would point people to that I think everyone should know about is a guy named Salopek. He's a journalist for National Geographic. He's Pulitzer Prize winner, but he's doing this project right now where he is walking the path of human evolution. So he started in Ethiopia, kind of where they found the oldest of fossils. And he walked up to the Red Sea and then over up the Sinai Peninsula, through the Middle East. He's going to have to take a boat across the Bering Sea because it's not no longer a land bridge and then walk all the way down the West Coast of North America, South America. Like he's basically tracing the entire path of human evolution. And he was supposed to have been in South America by this year, but he's been arrested multiple times. And then of course the pandemic shut everything down, but he hasn't given up. Like he writes about it in National Geographic, does updates on him. And if you look him up, Paul Salopek. That's what it is. Definitely a journalist
0: worth knowing about he's doing some really interesting work. That's amazing. So the last question, can you please tell me what brings you happiness? Well, my
1: family always and my kiddos and coming to appreciate recently how soon they will be leaving. I'm trying to really appreciate every hug and giggle. Aside from my family, professionally, the very important meetings, It's funny because I don't always feel like sitting down to write or sitting down to host a meditation or whatever, but I do it because it's on the schedule and I committed to it. But when I'm done and I wrap up and I leave, how many times I've like gone out into the kitchen to like make myself a salad or something. And my husband always says, you're in the best mood after those meetings. You always just kind of float out of your office afterwards. And it's true. There's something wonderful about I meditate, I write. I get to talk with some like-minded people and it's so grounding. It really has become such a source of joy for me
0: over the last few months. Thank you so much. I hope that a lot of people who listen to us will actually join you and come and meditate and write. I was going to say that for me, even though I am not planning to write fiction, it didn't stop the fact that it was a powerful way for me to find creative outlets. So. A lot of
1: people who come don't write fiction, they're writing poetry or memoir or nonfiction. And it's so fun to hear what everyone's working on.
0: Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And I'll put all of the links in the show notes so people can find you very easily. Have a wonderful day and have a great meeting. Thank you so much. Thanks to April for being my guest on the show today. You can find her online, aprildavila.com. And on Instagram, at April Davila. Of course, you should definitely check out her wonderful project, A Very Important Meeting. And that is AVeryImportantMeeting.com. You can also find her novel, 142 Ostriches, at all good bookstores. Of course, as usual, all of the links are included in the show notes. So that's it for this episode. And I hope you'll join us again next time. Our theme music is by Connor Heffernan, artwork by Brian Ponto, special thanks to Joel for editing and sound. You can soon find all of my episodes and find out more about my projects at annvmulatala.com. You can sign up to receive updates on all the cool things I am working on. The site is almost live. Um, You can also follow the show on Instagram, at underscore out of the clouds if you can please rate and review the show on iTunes it really does help other people find it now until next time be well be safe remember the hand washing the mask the social distancing all of that good stuff